one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Adel Amarcy Unplugged. I'm your host of the most, as always, Adel Amarcy. And today we have a very special treat uh, of a guest on the show. Now, that book would have come out around the time that the show goes live anyway, so you guys can actually find it online right away. And I will actually tell you why it's such a great book if you haven't already checked it out. Um, but just to give you a quick idea about my uh, guest today. Now, this person has been, well, he disrupts, he disrupts, disrupts, oh my God, I can't speak fucking English, disrupts, he disrupts industries entirely, especially from the food and beverage industries as well as like, basically just, he's done some cool shit. That's as far as I'm going to tell you. He's done some really cool shit because I don't want to misclaim what he's done because I've done that one before and I don't repeat it again. Um, but please welcome my guest for this week, David Lemley. Did I get you saying, did I say your name right? You sound perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Sweet dude. Great to have you on here. I'm glad we got connected through Brie. Um, real quickly, she said something about Starbucks. I didn't want to quote it just in case I was out of, uh, I was out of line, but what did that actually happen? Like, did you end up working with Starbucks at one point? Yeah, actually, so that's a great uh, entry point into this story. So uh, if you kind of back up a little bit from Starbucks, so I started my uh, design firm back then trying to make cool stuff and trying to find rebellious, brave clients. And I was lucky enough to get a phone call from the team that Howard Schultz put together, which included the head of Nike, the guy that came up with Just Do It, and the head of Disney Retail, who came up with Disney Retail as, an, as a concept. And they were the Starbucks team, and they called me. And I got to be lucky enough to be in the room when it happened. So they wanted to build a store a day forever and realized that their brand platform and their communication toolbox and their architecture and everything was too mainstream. So this was in 96. So they had 800 locations and said, let's go. We're going to see how quickly we can get over 12,000. And so I was lucky enough to be at the whiteboard at that spot and got to help lead a team of incredibly talented. I, the, the list of names exceeds 40 people who all participated. But I was um, the kid um, feeling like I was in the candy store and got to participate in what actually is the third place, the Starbucks concept, and how do you nurture the human spirit one cup at a time, and how can we spread that around the globe? And first off, um, normalize the espresso experience into something that is part of culture rather than uh, you know this unique European experience so it was the the mainstreaming of that concept and then all of that sort of crazy artwork around the siren it being a metaphor for the allure of caffeine and coffee and its connection to Moby Dick and the original sort of crazy busy stuff that we all grew up with that's my team's work and again any others it was it was before um, before they had a really killer in-house design team, they, they built that design team around the brand Bible that we wrote. That's insane. Okay, so I gotta ask right away, what is this whole brand Bible concept? Because you're not the first person to say this to me. My designer said it to me and I want to know. Like I've asked her and she was like, if you don't know, you don't know. So I'm curious, what's this whole design Bible thing? <laughs> so a brand Bible is different than- Brand uh, Bible, that's it. Sorry, brand Bible, not design Bible. I fucked that one up. <laughs> Don't worry. So if you think about a brand Bible, so the difference between a brand Bible and a style guide, so a style guide gives you a great tool to put into the logo police's hands or it gives you a toolbox that a creative services firm can um, activate against. 
a brand Bible begins with evangelism and gets into the why, what, how, and immediately goes into your world of tone and voice and attitude and um, what words should come out of the mouths of the sales team, what words should come out of the mouths at field marketing, how copy might be inspired, how social media should be handled. It is holistic. It's a 360-degree view of how to communicate the brand from an evangelical perspective and then tactical. That's incredible. That's actually incredible. I'm going to stop right here for just a second because I realized I haven't actually done our sponsor shout outs for this episode, which is terrible. So guys, dead easy. Uh, go check out retail-voodoo, that's V-O-O-D-O-O.com, where you'll actually find David's website. And it actually has a lot of interesting uh, case studies. It has, a, if I remember correctly, it has a little bit of insights as well, what they're doing, and gives you more of an idea of exactly uh, how and why they build their brands better than most people. It's kind of amazing that and as well as you can actually, you guys can actually, you can actually go check out story blueprint.com where of course I show you how to get on, find your own uh, journey and in three simple steps, how you can shortcut what I call the hero's journey down to just three steps. Um, and finally, of course, this episode is sponsored by retail voodoo, the book. Actually, it's not retail voodoo, the book. I'm sorry. I just fucked that one. It's beloved and dominant brands uh, by David, which is of course, which is, of course, found on retail-voodoo.com. But if you guys check it out on Amazon, if you haven't checked it out already, it is the brand ecosystem that drives better. Uh, well, it drives basically your brands um, far better than you can ever imagine. It's just something that disrupts a lot of different industries. And on that note, I'm actually going to ask David, because I, I was curious about this. Why did you write this book? Like, Why did you write Beloved and Dominant Brands? I wrote the book to help the people who are disrupting the food and beverage system. So I wanted all the do-gooder brands who wanted to clean up big ag and get into sustainable or alternative farming and promote organic and transitional farming and really push so that people knew what was in their food. And I have deep passion around it. And what, what happened is uh, we've been playing in that space for quite a long time, but because it's now a hot place and there's so many investors and equity, private equity looking to jump into it because they have the funds to help blow up a brand. You have founder owners who may or may not, not know how to build a brand and you have investors who may be incredibly aggressive and are largely from the tech world trying to do this. And so what's happening is they're going and pulling major CPG company marketing executives and, and C-suite into these founder owner startups in this alternative or better for you space. And I wrote the book because I wanted to give them a common vocabulary. If you all read this, you cannot mess this up. If you follow this roadmap, you will go from uh, being a me too to being unique and ownable. And so, and, and the reason that I came to that is because what happens is every, every one of these darling brands creates something and thinks, thinks they are the cat's meow because at one point in time, they are the cat's meow. But as we all know, only the factory is no longer the radical differentiator. The idea is the differentiator. So if you have, let's say you're making a, um, a puff from peas and that's much better for you than Cheetos, well, anybody can knock that off once you have that out there. So how does your brand differentiate? So you, you, you start with an idea and you become dominant or the lead in that idea by default. And once you have proven that, 
everyone, including the retailers who put you on their shelves, will knock it off. So you become one of many. And the book is a roadmap to get you from one of many back to category prominence. So to become beloved and dominant and not playing on price. See, that's excellent. I love that concept and, th- and thought process. Now, my question is, would something like that, could you still take the principles and apply it to other industries as well? Or is it just specifically for food and uh, beverages? Well, I think that it's, it's, you could take the core principles and apply it to any brand that faces consumers. But what makes this book unique and why it's designed for better for you is each chapter ends with a category audit set of questions and those I wrote specifically based upon having used this model that's in the book hundreds of times with clients in this category. And so I have written them intentionally to help people who are in wellness minded, better for you, food and beverage and fitness and, and that whole genre around modern wellness. Those, the questions are intended to help them become really introspective about what they're doing and come up with answers quickly. See, that's pretty awesome. So are you open to playing, to doing a little bit of role play today? Absolutely. I love that idea. Cool. Because like, I want to see, I, again, I'm completely putting David on the spot, by the way, guys, because he had no fucking clue I was doing this. Um, <laughs> but essentially what I want to do is I want to see how we can use the exact same strategies that you would use for, say, helping a company go for, grow a brand from, you know, one of many to beloved and dominant. And I want to see how we can do this with a fictional brand that isn't in the food and beverage industry, just basically to, to kind of polarize and see if we can actually get something that is universally applied. Because while myself personally, I love reading books of place of things such as um, beloved, dominant, uh, beloved and dominant brands, which is specifically about food and uh, the strategy in, in those brands and how you can apply them in your own. I want to see if we can do a live one like just one that's completely alive. So I'm going to think of one that isn't. So let's just, let's look at business coaching and specifically let's look at business coaching in the sense of uh, what the entire job is to help a company get to six figures online. That That is their digital retail brand and their online digital uh, business coach. Their entire business is like, again, get six figures. That's our job. And let's just say the product is, and again, I'm really throwing you a curveball here, buddy. Uh, let's just say the the thing that they're selling online is um, for themselves is a information product. So like a, a course or something like that? Yeah. Let, let, let's but, just, yeah. So let, let's just say it's a course. It's a video course on how to, um, how to grow your business to six figures from a world renowned business coach. That's absolutely amazing. But that, they're amazing at their job, but they're not well-known. So they're great at what they do, but they don't have the authority and dominance that they would like to have. Okay, got it. All right, what's cool. The, what's the first question? So the first question is quite simply, how do they act, where do they begin with their brand building? Do they begin with their website, their message, or do they begin with their, say for instance, how they're perceived on social media? Those are really good questions. And so what I want to point out is that, you know, you jumped right to tactics. And that's exactly. the most common mistake that all businesses, regardless of whether it's B2B or professional services or selling insurance or going to consumer, they jump to tactics. We call it uh, fire-ready aim rather than being very precise about what you're doing. So Excellent. without a plan, you're likely to use up your budget, 
and get um, nominal results. So the first step is actually really to think about the promise you want to make, which in this case is we're gonna get you to six figures. So that's, that's the promise. And then you need to understand what your proof points are. If you have you know, six, 10, 20, 100 clients, you've done this before, I would start there by asking them what it was like to work with me, the coach. And really, truly understand how people who hired me in the past feel about the way in which I kept the promise of helping them get to six figures. And from there, I would decide what my mission is, how I'm going to keep my promise, and I would decide what my guiding principles are, how I'm going to communicate about it. And then, when I had all of that, I would write a positioning statement. And from there, I would say, okay, with all of these bits in place, where do I want to put my poker chips? And if I understand my audience really well, I would say, are they, if, if people who are entrepreneurial are wanting to get to six figures quick and they're looking for a coach, something tells me just based upon that premise that they're going to be young and hip and digitally native. And so I would probably start with social, which is super the opposite of the book <laughs> because it talks about what you got to do. But before I actually went and started spending money on social, I would completely crystallize my customer education. What do they need to know? Okay. So what do they need to know about me? And are there any proof points about the process I use for coaching or that sort of thing? So get all of that crystal clear, have an education platform. And that would be across different channels on social media, figure out how you're going to use Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or what have you for those different elements and how to not just replicate the same thing across those channels, but to make each one unique. So somebody who's looking for a business coach on LinkedIn has got a little bit more of a networker mentality than somebody who's looking for a business coach on Instagram. That is brilliant. See that I do love the fact that you actually called me out on the whole strategy thing, because that is something that very few people are like, no, so I would totally do it this way instead of kind of going, you're going the wrong way, buddy. So I appreciate you for actually doing that. Um, so my question from that would lie in how would you basically create your like you said something was it was it a statement that you would basically create like, it wasn't a mission statement but it was like positioning statement yeah that's the one so your positioning statement how would you go about creating that because I'm a copywriter and even I have trouble like with those I know they're they're brutal because they have to be BS free yep they have to be somebody like it's it's almost like your handshake. Uh, you know, and think about like Skype, you know, you have to wave, you know, there's, before we get into a deep conversation, there needs to be an icon and a wave. Like, so the positioning statement needs to be not over-promising. It needs to help them understand what business you're in and very quickly without any emotion, what's in it for them and how are you different? So if you're a business coach that specializes in getting entrepreneurs to six figures and that's your job, how are you how are you different than every other business coach? Those two things we just mentioned about uh, starting with entrepreneurs who are on their way to cross the six-figure mark, that is a, a pretty good niche. So then you might want to do a little research to understand, well, where are the places where people who are trying to get from zero to 100K, uh, what, where are they wanting to play? And maybe you can bring some expertise to that and position more narrowly there. I think that the, the thing I would say about a positioning statement and how you get over it being um, this daunting task is it's about uh, 
really understanding, going back to the promise you're going to make and deciding that's the core of your strategy and being clear on the way you're going to keep it. A lot of times if we're struggling to develop a positioning statement with a client, we go and look at audience and we start to excommunicate heathen. In other words, we cut people out of the audience to be. So we'll go and look at a cohort and say, yeah, that's really interesting, but we're not going to help people who, like in our world, like no tobacco, alcohol, or firearms, you know? That's, okay. that's that, just as an example. So not that those people are actually heathen. We just call it excommunicate the heathen because it's provocative and fun to say. And people will remember the idea of go narrow to get bigger. Mm-hmm. Really I love the freaking phrase, though, by the way. <laughs> like, I'm a fan of that phrase now. Thank you. I kind of want the t-shirt. Excommunicate the heathen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that should totally be it. And if you're, to be fair, one of the best ways you can make money off of that is kind of like if people read the book, is you can get a t shirt saying um, heathen, excommunicated, what was it, excommunicated heathen, like themselves going like pointing upwards at themselves. <laughs> Love it. Just as a fun little idea. But this is something that I really enjoy. And thank you for that because I know uh, I, I love being put on the spot personally whenever I do these kinds of calls with um, podcasters as well, like where I'm featured. But I never know if other people would actually love it as much as um, if I do it to them. So this is quite nice. I'm glad that you managed to play, that you did play along with us because that is uh, that is just a huge sign of exactly your level of expertise and how you do it. So I, I, one of the things I'm really curious about, like really curious about here, when you're actually looking at brands, specifically ideas, where do your ideas come from for the strategies that you use? Like, are they just intuitively just right there? Or is it years and years of being in the industry and your brain has just collected them? Or do you actually still look for new inspiration? Uh, wow, that's a really good question. And I don't think anyone has ever asked me that question. So really? You know, yeah. Wow. <laughs> really. Exclusives. <laughs> I'll tell you that there's a lot going on in my head all the time and I've surrounded myself with a brilliant group of people who have a lot going on in their head all the time and we've all done this literally hundreds of times so if we, and not all together you know everybody has a, a past and a, their experience level so we come in you know curious and hungry and also trying to have a beginner's mind despite having done it so many times and so what we do in order to to make our ideas valid is we try to use data and research to break ourselves down to zero. So we try to not make any strategic assumptions, but rather use data to show us where not to go. And when you start to put shackles on yourself, wild creativity is possible. Okay. So, okay. So you're saying when you put shackles on yourself, that's when wild creativity really becomes possible. Yeah. Okay, I'm curious to why that is. Because like for me, whenever I put shackles on my creativity, it immediately it's just like, nope, don't want to do this. No, don't shackle your creativity. Shackle the assignment. The assignment oh, should be shackles. Yes. Otherwise, you know, you're you're doing Hemingway. You know? Yeah. Writing writing drunk and editing sober. That's that's not <laughs> that's no fun. I mean it I've can be. That. I've tried that many a time. It it's not helpful. It really isn't. I end up looking at my work going what the hell was I trying to say? <laughs> Me too. I, I, uh, I call that the 90s. Um, <laughs> I was still a child, so I couldn't actually, unfortunately, call that the 90s yet. All right. So, so there you go. That's but anyways, crazy. back to this idea of shackles. So I say, um, as, a, as a creative problem solver, 
um, you can do anything without a, without a problem. You're just making stuff up without a problem to solve and without addressing somebody else's uh, like businesses or this business coach or a brand or your own challenge and restrictions and timeframes and limitations without that, you're just making cool stuff. But when you come back and say, okay, uh, it kind of goes to the chat we were having right before we popped on, which is, you know, it's, there's a so freaking much pressure to, to move quickly because everybody's so accessible and there's all these tools to make workflows happen so quickly. So, you know, creativity on demand seems like a thing now. Yeah. And, um, my point is that, uh, if you don't have some really strong restrictions of, oh, well, we can't say that for regulatory reasons, or we can't say that because that's not true, or we can't say that because, you know, the FDA or someone will come down on us, something of that nature. If you don't have restrictions in place, you have the whole world of possibility. And when you have the whole world of possibility, it becomes a big blank canvas. And as, an, as the artist within trying to be that creative problem solver, the likelihood is there's a little bit of fear of putting the first splotch down or not getting it right. Whereas if you come in and say, okay, I've got this much time, this much money, this is the personality of the person I'm solving the problem for or the brand that I'm solving. And I need to check these seven boxes for their audience. Those are some pretty good shackles. And the likelihood is you're going to get there quicker because of the shackles and do something more brilliant than if you blue skied it. I, I would agree with that entirely. I've done, I again, like I said, I've been on so many different business ends of what you do and how you get it done. I think my brain is genuinely just right now at the point where it, it can't deal with the creativity on demand service that is demanded in today's day and age. And like to take it further to the point of how you basically created like having that shackle to your project, it, it does work. But do you find like time limits, um, like what, what time limits? So I'm kind of like completely jumping off topic here. My brain just found a question. I was like, ah, must ask. Um, and that is <laughs> when you're actually sitting down and actually doing your projects, do you find time limits actually work for you? And if they do, how frequently do you use them? Like do you use the 33 minute time limit rule or do you use like a, a clock timer? Or you only work, I'm sorry, uh, one of those weird times, it starts with P, I can't say, I can't remember the name. Um, where they are, it's set to like 45 minutes an hour where you work and you get 15 minutes of movement. Well, that's, you know, we do a lot of that here. What I'll say is that I have a room, I guess it's an office, and I have a stand-up desk in there and I do some work in here, which is actually where we're recording today. But every project that happens in my studio has its own immersion room. Really? And so yeah, it's fantastically cool. It's it's the simplest, cheapest way to go. Oh, crap, everything I ever needed to remember about this is here in the room with me. So it's a little bit of like the you know Grundlefly and the fly where he stuck everything on the walls. It yeah. looks a little like that, but it's the strategy behind that or the rationale is that it's all up in the room and I don't have to go dig through it and I don't have to remember. So I'll set a clock or a meeting time and say, okay, this project gets an hour today, this one gets two, and move from room to room to room. And the cool thing is my team has all adopted this way of thinking, and so we'll all do it. Okay, I'll meet you in this room or that room. And so, you know, something, I think we have something like eight rooms, and 
all of them are in different stages. Some might be in the like, oh crap, we don't know anything and, and we're building the schedule and we gotta figure out what research we need. And others might be all the way to, okay, we're releasing in this, this into the wild and here's, here is the customer education platform and here's the social strategy and here's what the website needs to do. It's, it's all different levels. So it's kind of cool because it's never like I'm doing the exact same thing for an eight hour slog, needing to take a break from it. That's pretty cool. I've got to start adopting something along that line. So right now what I've done is I've built in a home office into my apartment. Uh huh. I find like what I'm trying to get myself to do is wean myself off using my laptop when I'm not in this room. Very smart. Which is, which is difficult because I didn't realize that my, like, I attached myself to my laptop as much as I do. Um, because again, we have smartphones who are checking stuff. But I'm kind of trying to step away from all of that. It's going to sound really strange to someone that actually runs a digital business and you know has podcasts and stuff. I want to create it so as soon as you walk into this room that is my office, um, and I'll upload a video for you guys onto my YouTube channel once I actually finish building this and have a walk through the house. Um, you know, so for thieves out there that want to rob me, they can actually see. Oh, there are no entry points, and if I enter his home, his cats will either eat me or he'll beat the shit out of me, which is probably going to happen if you try and rob me, by the way. Um, trying to get off topic of that. Hey, years of Thai boxing and jiu-jitsu experience, you know, you know how to defend yourself and your home. But um, as far as it goes with like the walk through my office, what you'll realize is it's the center of creativity in my house. Like I've got my piano, three ukuleles, uh, an, an aero drumstick set. So it's basically just drumsticks in just that has the entire drum kit in the drumsticks. Um, and a bass guitar and an amp. All my books are going in here and everything else. So is my Mac and everything else. The basic reason is the moment I step out of this room, I said it a little bit earlier, is I want to be able to like breathe easy. That I've left work me in a room and I don't need to face him. And regular me can decide if he wants to go for a walk. He can decide if he wants to go just play video games mindlessly for six hours or whatever. If I want to spend more time in the creative room, I can do. If I want to read a book, I'm not allowed to read a book downstairs. I have to read it in this room. Because what I, I want to do is cultivate an energy of constant creativity in it. I think that's smart. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're in your apartment, you have both your, your human life and your professional creative life. The, yeah. the challenge in that particular situation, which I, I've done that, uh, that route in, um, my hat is off to you because you're you're talking about it from a very disciplined and sustainable perspective which is oh, I, i'm trying to i was gonna say i'm trying to because i've gone the other way and i failed miserably where i had like i didn't have enough space to have that separation so like my office and my living room are the same place yeah that's that's brutal i mean that like, was. and and it's 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 only well it's brutal for a couple of reasons one is you start to have this weird imposter syndrome but it's not imposter around being creative it's an imposter syndrome around being a human being which is the opposite of you know it's just it, it makes a person crazy or it can and then you know once you get any traction and you have people who want to to work with you then ironically while you you feel good as a professional it just perpetuates the notion of no, no downtime, no, no personal life. Exactly. And that is not a fun place to be. 
because the old what's the old adage is uh, all work and no play make a jack uh, make jack a very dull boy i've never done that <laughs> yeah it's it's i don't think anyone that is something that i i know a lot of people use the phrase i wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy actually i would wish that exact hell on my enemy <laughs> the reason is because well i know how much it fucked me up so like fuck it you're my enemy fuck you <laughs> it's exactly the thought that would happen I've never yeah. really understood that whole, I would never, I, I get that you wouldn't want to wish something terrible on your worst enemy, but in my, in my books, if someone is genuinely like your worst enemy, you've got no feeling for them. So you wish them the worst, just as a side note entirely. <laughs> so let's, let's, get, go let's go there. Cause I love that. I, let's talk about that. Oh, so, what enemies and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I used to be, uh, I used to subscribe to that point of view. I didn't mean to, it just sort of happened, you know, because I think yeah. it is human nature to be like, okay, you're my enemy, you are an adversary, I need to dominate, possess, or overcome you. And one of the things that, as far as like getting into the, being the human inside the creative, is I've gotten really great advice from mentors and coaches over the course of my journey. And one of the things that has made me I believe is responsible for making me as energized and beginner's heart and beginner's mind as I have, despite having been doing this for so long, is that I have committed to, no matter who they are, including my enemies, love them wherever they are. Love first and to let people be whoever they are and commit to not having to correct their doctrine. Yeah. And it is freed me from so much stuff that I'm like, hey, I I am an energy source now for myself and for others because I'm not carrying around that uh, that uh, feeling. Yeah, the feeling. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is genuine. I totally. I can totally uh, admit to that and agree to that. Something I have not been doing a lot of lately, but something I am pushing myself to go back into is having that mindset because um, for me, it's kind of a weird, like little, it, it's almost coming full circle again because I spent most of my life in self-development and understanding how my brain works and out of necessity more than anything else. I got to a point where I thought where I was pretty good with myself, but, you know, I'm really positive. I'm a happy person. And then a friend of mine shattered that illusion for me. And it's one of the best things he could ever do for me. Yeah, he helped me break free from this uh, shell identity that I'd got myself trapped into, you know, to let go a lot of the, as he put them, emotional cancers that were killing me slowly. So I, I, back then, I, as much as I preached emotion, I couldn't actually feel my own emotions. I could only uh, emulate what I believed was a feeling, which makes me, makes me sound like a sociopath, uh, but I'm not. It's just something that basically is how my brain handled a trauma from a very young age. In that same sense, and what's really fascinating about it, at least to me, is how our brains adapt to trauma and create a shell identity that we believe is our true identity. So when my friend Gregory basically, because it was a, it was a mystery to him more than anything, that how could someone write such emotive copy to get me to buy, but yet cannot feel their own emotions, like fully? So was, he, he was like, you're a walking paradox. So I'd love to help you. We did some work together. I went through my transformation, obviously well-documented, fun stuff there. By the time I came out and by the time the show was actually aired, should be around my two-year mark for uh, going through that transformational process, 
one of the most incredible things that I'm kind of coming back to is all my old thought processes, like, you know, I would wish that on my worst enemy, have all come tumbling back into my life. And now it's kind of rediscovering that self-development journey, but from, from new eyes to go full circle, feel my emotions fully, but also have that cam- compassion and love for someone that I feel would have wronged me for whatever reason. Yeah, I think that that's, I, it's fantastic to hear you talk about it because the idea of transformation, you know, that's not um, evolution, that's change in an instant and it's new, it's a new mind. And yeah. that's really fantastic. But that as you go and then spend your time on planet Earth interfacing with other humans, the, the child within you is still there and will default to things. And rather than trying to um, re-educate that child, it's, it's more like um, encourage that child and let them be and, and to be able to, to be mindful of, okay, that's an old, old saying or, or a, that's that original voice. And, and rather than trying to squash it, just kind of saying, okay, so that's, that's what I'm thinking and what do I want to do with it? And if you keep that promise to yourself about like, okay, am I going to, Maybe today I'm going to let it be that way or tomorrow I won't. Like just that kind of level of promise. I think it's very similar to um, being physically healthy and being somebody who, in like in my world, we talk to people who want to eat clean food all the time. And yet like some of the people I know that are really like the cleanest, including myself, is like I love bourbon. And so some days <laughs> I I'll drink bourbon, but I, I don't stay with bourbon. In this case, bourbon would be the, the negative. I allow myself to have bourbon, and then I have a plan in place and a promise to my inner self to get back to the other thing. And so it's kind of the best of both worlds. And if I kind of take that to the um, emotion space, I think there are, while emotions are more complex, the theory, I think, is the same. That's pretty cool. I actually do like that. And I agree with you. And also I got to ask, what's your favorite bourbon? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, I, I think that the one that I like right now is that a friend of mine got for me and it's called uh, Booker's. Ooh, nice. Yeah. I've heard of Booker's. I've never actually tried it. It's How about you? Do you have a favorite? I'm kind of, with bourbon, I'm a basic bitch. I will admit to that. And I actually say that I do particularly like Bullet. Bullet oh, bourbon. yeah. I like that one. Yeah. Definitely That's one good. of my favorites. Uh, but if I had to really put, like, if it was whiskeys, oh, man. I've got a couple of, like, uh, Glen Fittich is a great whiskey. Um, Glen Groach is another one. Uh, Girol. I can't actually say it properly, but it's a Scottish word. Gaelic word rather. And I'd say one that surprised me, caught me like out the blue, proper 12 whiskey, like Conor McGregor's whiskey. I thought it was going to be terrible. Surprisingly not terrible. Oh, that's interesting. I have to check that out. Yeah. It's, it was like surprisingly not terrible. And when I had it, I was like, wow, you taste like, I gave it to a friend of mine that is from Dublin. I was like, Hey, try some. And he was like, Oh, this is amazing. Because uh, he wanted to try it, but then he was like, "Yeah, but you know what they say about whiskeys from celebrities—they're terrible." I'm like, "Yeah, I know." Tries it and goes, "How was this good?" We have no idea. It's got like a really nice fruit-flavored taste to it. Um, That's cool. That's really cool that uh, it, it broke the broke the stereotype. Yeah. Yeah, entirely. 
Um, and he's, you know, he's obviously known for doing that, which is brilliant. Um, but kind of like circling back to um, something I did want to actually ask you specifically about branding, because uh, actually never branding, but like getting your foot through the door or getting your foot in the door for companies. Can't speak English today, but um, getting your foot uh, into the door for like companies to actually like to open them and work with you. What are some of the quality things that people should look for, especially if they're working freelance? Because that's something that I do know that I do get asked on the show quite frequently by, you know, my subscribers. How do they actually bring on um, a bigger client, like someone that's a corporate client? Yeah, that is a really big question. So if you're wanting to go from, you know, most freelance works for a larger creative organization. So yeah. typical agency. So that's that's usually where it starts. If you're wanting to move to start to bring on clients who uh, are are going to agencies to get their problem solved, it's it's a mind shift. Really, you have to think about what's in it for them, not what do you get to do. And so, it's really important. So, especially with thinking about again creativity on demand and things like. Um, you know, places like Upwork, for example, where you can go and bid a job out. And just if, as a creative professional, I think that um, you have to be really well adjusted for for a place like that to feel good because you don't have any visual visualization of what you're actually solving as a problem. So again, this idea of figuring out what clients clients being businesses and corporations or entrepreneurs, what they need, what's in it for them and learning to speak their language. Mm -hmm. Creativity has its own lexicon. And what I find when I talk to other creatives who have not um, crossed on over to the dark side of understanding business, they speak a different tongue than people who can sit in the room with somebody who is running a business. And the challenge is you need to learn that business tongue in order to at least understand what they're saying. Huh. Curious. What is that? What is the um, lexicon? What is the difference that you found between the two? Like big, obvious ones, obviously. So the big, obvious ones is so, um, so as a designer back in the day, I was what you might call a type geek. And okay. talking with other creative professionals, I could geek some serious type lingo mm -hmm. and talk about, Design, talking about creativity, everything from a typographic perspective, which of course only other type geeks are going to get. But yeah. in the world of creativity, that made me excruciatingly cool to 12 people who understood what I was saying and elite to the other 30,000 who didn't quite get it but knew the words enough because that's how creativity, the circles of creativity work as the community. Yeah. It's like when somebody discovers that you can you know, fragment reality through some sort of um, visual, everyone flocks to that. It's human nature. So again, it, it's a it's an internal dialogue about the coolness of the creativity. In this case, I'm talking about visual typography, but it could be copywriting, it could be advertising, it could be anything, really, any any of those. And everybody's got it. And so, let's say you're in motion graphics. Well, there's a shorthand for motion graphics, and motion graphics experts geek out on that. And rather than solving the problem for the client. And so that's the tongue of the creative circles 
And we do it because we feel comfortable and we also have to aspire to learn that. That's what our educations typically are based on. And then our first circle of friends that come out of either your, your academic world or your professional world, they all support and encourage that. And what happens is you take that kind of creative professional and you put them in front of some, say, entrepreneur or a business person or somebody who's a business coach who's wanting to make six to to, prom, to keep a promise to people that they're going to get them to six figures. They don't care about the type. They just know when it'll work or not work, but they have a different problem. And if you can't speak to them in a way that demonstrates you understand their problem, they will not listen to you. And they will think all of those terrible cliches that creative professionals have about that community in the business world will be perpetuated. That's incredible. Sorry, I'm just like literally taking notes as you said that. Right. So one of the things we do here to address that is we teach everyone to speak business, not business bullshit, but yep. business for real. Pain point, reality. What's it like for the um, marketing professional in that organization? What? How do they lose their job? What's at stake for them? What does success look like? What are their pain points? Why did they even consider talking to us? And when you can start to do that and not just be the coolest kid in the room, they start to have a dialogue with you about what's at stake for them. When you can solve their problem and, um, and demonstrate to them that you heard them when they told you what's at stake for them and then make it really cool and elegant, then you're a ninja. Yeah. And it's it's the one of the best ways. Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. I'll, I'll jump to my point in a moment. No, no, I want to hear. That's good. Oh, I was actually going to say like one of the coolest things I've ever heard about this is if you can explain what their problem is to them better than they can say it to themselves, you've got a customer. That's exactly it. So again, think of it like this. So you, let's say you're talking to somebody and it takes them five minutes to lay out their situation and you can feed it back to them. Having listened really intently and reflectively, but give them a, you know, a five point bullet list in, of here's the situation, did I get it? They will see that you are good at distilling information, which is really what creativity is. Creativity is the translation to um, take their business problems and their situation and translate it so it's easier for others to get. Yeah. That, that's just the beauty of what I love about this work is that when you actually get it for business, it becomes so much more fun. Now, I, I do have a fun question I always love loading this show with, and it's one of my favorite questions of all time. And specifically, I'm gonna just preface this question by first asking you, do you ever watch movies just for fun or read like books that are just like fiction books as well? I do, in fact, I, I try to do that for pleasure. I, I, I try to not have any, any agenda with it. Perfect. I love that because that that's something that I I went on a rant about this at a seminar that I was speaking at where I basically said I'm sick and tired of entrepreneurs and copywriters telling people not to read fictional work. And they were like, why? I was like, because where else do you think you're going to find amazing creativity and story ability? What selling is obviously going to, it, what sells in one industry sells in another most of the time when you look under the, under the hood and see what the concepts are. Now, so this is one of my favorite questions on the show is if I had to ask, if you were to recommend, ten, uh, let's go with this, seven books 
And they could be either fiction or nonfiction, but let's go with a three nonfiction minimum. And then the rest is kind of free for all. Um, what would they be? But also what three movies on top of that would you recommend and why the people should go watch them? Oh my goodness. And by the way, with the why, it doesn't have to be because it's a brilliant business movie. It could be like, I just think it's a masterpiece. That's a completely legitimate reason. All right. <laughs> okay. So nonfiction books. Yes. For our listeners, I think the book Traction by Gina Wickman is an amazing primer for creative people to begin to understand what entrepreneurs and business people need for creativity. It, it, it's full of charts and graphs, and I think it's, it's, it teaches entrepreneur baseline and basic organizational concepts and we, we use it all the time still in our team to make sure that we're speaking the right language. It's a great book. Um, it's, uh, Gino Wickman has a whole bunch of, uh, he, he's like this coach guy to promise to get you to six figures, but I think he's in a different plane than that, but he has online courses, all sorts of stuff. So that's one. Um, another book that I love and use all the time is Blue Ocean Strategy and Blue Ocean Shift. Those mm -hmm. are books that, from a creative perspective, once you understand that creativity is problem solving applied to a specific set of stuff, those books, we use them every day. They rock my planet. I love them. So that's three. <laughs> um, Nonfiction. Fiction books. Um, Labyrinth of the Spirits. The author's name is escaping me at the moment. Let's put it in the show notes. The, this guy is so freaking amazing at storytelling. The texture, the, um, the foreshadowing, the, it's a book about um, being in Spain between Barcelona and, and Madrid during the uh, Civil War. Wait, and I think it's, it's by Carlos Ruiz Zafron, right? It is. That That's book, a... oh my gosh. So it's actually yeah. on my nightstand right now. Um, yes, so another book that I think is um, similar but different, but kind of said, oh my gosh, read it, get lost in reality, get lost in this, is um, The Historian, which is actually, ironically, not my thing. It's a Dracula book. But it's um, it's so well done, and yeah. um, that author escapes me as well. But um, we'll find the show notes. The historian is fantastic, and um, and then a book that just for fun that I I just recommended this to um, <laughs> the CEO of a a multi-billion-dollar organization two days ago because he's like, well, about this, 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 and we started talking, and the book. Ready Player One, from which they made the movie. The movie was amazing, by the way. The movie was fantastic. The book is even better. Oh, agreed. The oh, book agreed. is so much more texture, and the character, the 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 young the man, character, yep. yeah, the center of the book or center of the the whole um, narrative arc. He's got so much more pain in the book that you you're set up with. It helps you understand what the stacks are and the trailers and his family and where his parents went and all of that sort of stuff that is um, just touched upon in the in the movie. They set all of that up and then he's way more introspective in the book because that format allows it to happen that way. So you, when he has kind of an 80s moment or a thing or a retro thing with the founder who's writing the game, in the book it's so great 
Whereas in the movie, it's fantastic, but it's like fantastical versus deeply textured. Gotcha. So it's basically like seeing something very shiny versus like the heavy substance underneath it. Like it's good, but it could be better. Yeah. So those are my three fiction books. Now let's do movies. Okay. <laughs> he was like, I'm waiting to get on the movies, man. Okay. I can't. I'm like, yeah. So one of, it's an oldie, but get it goodie. Um, and I'm sure, oh my gosh. I'm so sorry about that. I have, we updated my OS and apparently my iPhone is talking to my laptop, um, which has been, um, it doesn't happen. So forgive me for that. Oh, it's okay. Like I've, I've done that before. So like, I, that's why I always have my phone next to me whenever I do these shows, just simply because my phone will buzz first before uh, my Mac rings. So I'm like, ah, quickly just, I can like mute it or like sh- shut it down beforehand. But it's all good. Like it happens to the best of us. <laughs> okay, so books, back to the book. I was about to tell you that, or not the book rather, the movie. The, the movie that is the oldie book goodie that I freaking love and that I can watch it over and over and over again because it blew my mind so hard the first time is Fight Club. Oh, brilliant, brilliant movie and book but the movie was better in this case. Yeah, it's, isn't that weird? So exactly. So the, the movie had so much more, um, it required the um, physical dimensionality and some of the star power and Ed Norton's uh, ability. Acting. Acting to make that, and Helena Bonham Carter, like the combo. Yep. And Brad I mean, Pitt and everything else. You could not ask for a more better movie in that moment from a cast. I agree. I agree with you entirely there. So that's my number one. The second one that is um, completely not like that at all, but is one of those movies where um, my, my family will tease me because they're like, oh crap, don't let him scroll through the uh, HBO channels because it'll likely be on. And then of course his commitment is he has to watch it. And that movie is American Gangster starring Denzel Washington. Oh, you, you are a man after my own heart. Like, can't not watch. Yeah, that, I have to watch it. That movie is so brilliant. It has so many lessons in it, personally, in my opinion, but also ha- it's so well done. It's yeah. so well done. Uh, and the, sorry, I just I want to jump into the, this conversation with just one second uh, and also answer the question earlier. The Historian is the novel by Elizabeth Costova with a K. Yeah. So that, that's the one that was going to bug me for later, so I quickly check. <laughs> So here's the insane thing about American Gangster. I was, I, I, like, my mother loves Denzel Washington. And, like, my mother and I are very close, like, extremely close. That is a movie, one of the movies that we went to the movie, uh, to the cinema, to the theater to watch together uh, when it came out. I, I think I just turned 15, or I was just about to turn 15 when it came out. And uh, I went to watch it with my mom. And she loved it. If I remember correctly, Hong, American Gangster is what year release, I, I wonder. It is, a, oh, no, I was definitely 17. I was 17 when I went to watch it with my mom. Um, and she loves that movie. It's, again, very similar. One of her favorite movies of all time. <laughs> okay, so you know. So you've seen it. Does she have to watch it if she happens to catch it on the two? Not her, but me. You have to watch. Yeah. It's, it's, you're just committed to watching that. Plus, you know, every actor in there is just brilliant. Even Idris Elba's in, Elba's in it. Yeah, yeah. It's such a good 
good, uh, good storytelling, good character development, and um, so much reality. tension. Yeah, it facing is. reality. Yep. So, what's your last one? What's the number three of the movies? Uh, so, I would have to say I am torn between um, it's a it's a Bruce Willis flick um, called The Fifth Element. Brilliant movie. Of course, it's got Chris Rock in it. And uh, what was it? Oh, my God. I, why can I forget? Why am I forgetting her name? Ukrainian actress, Milia Jovovich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We can call that up. Yeah. Um, I remember this because I, this is one of the like, movies that my friends loved growing up. And I was like, what? I don't understand. And then I watched it as an older person. I was like, yeah, I understand that. This is a good movie. I like this movie. Yeah. I, I think that I like... Um, I like the dystopia. It's like, it's one of the early, from this sort of dystopian genre that has become so popular. It's one of the early ones on that. So it's a combination of dystopia, science fiction, and um, just brilliant writing. Yeah, agreed. Could not agree more. Now, could I actually add a book that I recommend you should check out if you do? Well, I have to preface this. Do you like um, crime novels? Yeah. Okay, really good crime novel to read is Crucifix Killer by Chris Carter. Ooh. Yeah. It is incredible. Now I am a king I am I'm so keen for spoilers. I love spoilers. <laughs> okay. I genuinely, one of those guys. This book, and I I don't sometimes I don't I, at the time I didn't read fiction, I only read business books and stuff because that's what I was conditioned to do. Uh, very stupidly because very stupidly because it just takes away all the pleasure of reading um, after many years. So what I did was I got this book from a recommendation because at the time I was actually writing my own crime novel, which I have written and just need to finish editing. Um, and I was looking not for inspiration, but every crime novel I had read up until that point was very boring and bland. Like, you know, they don't, they kind of skip over the gruesome violence of a situation. This book pulled zero punches. I read this thing in three days. It read like a movie. Ah. So you, David, would absolutely love this. I gave it to my other friend, David. Uh, his name's David Walsh. I gave him a copy to read, and he missed his stop on the public transport, like on the, on the subway here, the, tube sta the underground stations here. He missed ah. his stop because he was so engrossed he had to get off and turn back around because it's like, I could not put this book down. That's fantastic. Okay, I'm getting it. I, yeah. It's uh, the, do... the first of many, but the first three books by this guy, and you'll see them in order, but The Crucifix Kill is the first one. It is so perfectly written. Like, genuinely. Even his latest book is perfectly written, but, like, this one particularly is, like, my favorite of them all. Huh. Okay, cool. That is a, that's a great, strong endorsement. Yep. And another movie that I'd suggest that I really love, I think you'd enjoy, is The Joker. Oh, the new one? Yeah. Okay. If so that's... this one... Go ahead. No, no. You were going to say? I was just going to say, so I'm a, a big Joaquin Phoenix fan. Same. I'm actually afraid to watch it because I, I'm worried about crying and feeling bad. And, um, oh, you will. <laughs> you will. Like, I, I, I want to say that you won't, but you will. You will watch this movie, and as someone for myself personally, for my audience, they do know this. Uh, I've I was diagnosed with like bipolar type one when I was younger, um, as well as like ADD and dyslexia and all the other fun stuff. 
but to watch someone's performance transform into who this iconic character is through how their mind actually becomes. And of course, by the show, by the time the show comes out, it would have come out. So spoiler warning still for the four people that haven't seen this. Um, but still, like w- without giving any spoils away to you, um, it genuinely shows you how that character breaks down. You end up having more sympathy and empathy for this character than you ever would in the past. Yeah. So like you almost become that. But when I left the theater, I felt so hollow inside that I uh, that my friends I went to see it with, we had to sit in perpetual silence the entire time because we were in our own heads for so long. In fact, one of us only broke the tension because um, the waiter at the restaurant slipped, bless him, and like dropped a drink. Didn't hurt himself, but he just <laughs> slipped and dropped a drink. That got us out of that that headspace, and we actually tipped that waiter generously for thanking him for doing so because we were not in the best headspace watching that movie afterwards. But it's a movie that I'd recommend anyone watching uh, anyone that's thinking about to watch it because it is a genuine masterpiece of story. Like if you look at it from that perspective of story, it is a masterpiece, but it's a masterpiece that I can only watch once. It's like seeing a very grotesque drawing by an amazing artist. You're like, this is brilliant, but I don't want to stare at it for too long. I, that's a very good way to describe that. Okay. So I, I got it. So I, I have so many things on my list now. Ha, it's always brilliant. <laughs> but yeah, just wrapping up the show very quickly. David, thank you for actually uh, taking time today and getting on the call with us today. I know that we've uh, we tried to do this for some time and I'm so glad we managed to get it done. And thank you for being such an amazing guest. I mean, this has been so much fun. I've taken so many notes on my iPad. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a really fun talk and I think we went places that, uh, who knew? Yeah, I don't, I've got a couple of exclusive bitches. So like listening yeah. out... Adel gets exclusive. That's how we do things. We get the exclusive scoops here. That's how we do things. But uh, guys, go definitely check out retail-voodoo.com as well as checking out David's book, Beloved and Dominant Brands. It is a pink book with a heart on it and a smiley face and an eye and you should actually completely see it very, very easily on uh, Google or Amazon or anywhere that you're buying books nowadays. Um, Yeah, go check it out. Is it going to be on Audible as well, by the way? So that is, that's going to be the next project. Uh, I have a couple of friends that are interviewed in the book or experts that I've been, you know, working with back and forth. And they have said they would do their parts if I did my part. So oh, I see the live voices. Oh, that'd be amazing. You guys should totally do that. And um, if you need a dynamite sound engineer, I will actually message you after the show because I know oh. someone would actually be able to help you out. Please do send that. That would be great brilliant all right guys go check out all the links that i basically suggested check out the books in the show notes and as always have an amazing weekend ahead stay safe have fun and i'll see you guys next week bye